And good morning. A minor detail has been moved up, let's see, 12 hours in advance. Um, I'm sitting here with coffee, black coffee, because that's the only stuff I can drink these days. And uh, (laughs) where do we even begin this week? It was like, I don't know. This was one of those weeks that I think will be inscribed into the history books that will be an indelible reminder that this is not a reality show but this is real life. This is just real life that's happening before our eyes. So maybe, you know, maybe it is a reality show. It's that it's just we're in the back door of it. But I have somebody who is just going to break everything down in Maryland politics. And, um, and then maybe we'll get into her, um, her other hobby, which is Game of Thrones, that I know nothing about. So I have Maryland pollster, Dr. Dr. Mila Cromer. She is coming on this morning because unfortunately tonight she is she's going to be watching some game of thrones and uh look let's face it at nine o'clock at, on a sunday night everybody's tired they want to go to bed because it's the dreaded monday so hey dr cromer welcome thanks for doing this with us uh on a minor detail hi good morning thank you so much for having me yeah so a little bit about um a little bit about you um you have a doctorate in political science from louisiana state university and a Bachelor of Arts in Economics from Indiana University of PA. And as we were talking offline, Dr. Cromer, um, we we have a Western Pennsylvania connection. I went to Duquesne, and, of course, you went to IUP. Great school. And uh, do you ever miss, do you ever go up to Pittsburgh and visit? Yes, my family still um, lives in Indiana County. Uh, so I was just home last week. I go, I go up to see my mom all the time. So I felt uh, very, uh, a really, really strong Western PA roots. I love it there. Oh, it's great. We were up last September for um, Duquesne's homecoming, and um, after 10 years of uh, being out of school, well, almost 10 years, I graduated in 2008, for Christmas, my mom got me my class ring, and uh, I'm, I'm wearing it to this I've been wearing it every day, and it reminds me that I am a, a young, scrappy kid from a middle-class family who got to go to college every time I look at that ring. And I think, good Lord, I grew up in Hagerstown, Maryland. Who would have ever thought I would be doing this on a Sunday morning, you know, all these years later. So Western Pennsylvania, good middle-class roots. Pittsburgh's a great city. And I got to tell you, a lot of great education up there. A lot to do. In the last 10 years, uh, Dr. Cromer, that I've been there, it's really changed a lot for, for the better. Oh, I, I think Western Pennsylvania certainly has changed for the better. Uh, I look at, well, I know you can speak really highly of your alma mater. I, right now, I can see that IUP is expanding um, where I went to undergrad. It's a lot bigger now. There's brand new dorms. I wish those dorms were there when I was in college. I think, Ryan, you're like a little bit younger than me, but not much. I'm 30. Um, I'll be 36 this week. Okay. So you are? 31. You're 31. Okay. So yeah, we're on the same age. Um, and it's, Every time I go home, there's something a little bit newer, a little bit better, and it's exciting to see that, particularly as we know in the, like the Rust Belt states have really had a major economic decline, but parts of Western Pennsylvania, um, I think, with a little bit of the tech boom that's come to Pittsburgh, uh, have mm. been able to sustain um, their, um, and still develop economically. Yeah, I agree. So in addition to uh, your undergraduate and your graduate work, you currently serve as um, – the director of the Sarah T. Hughes Field Politics Center um, at Goucher, Goucher College. And so basically what you do, you do a lot of polling, um, taking data, analyzing that data, and breaking it down to make sense of the ever-changing world of politics. And we have so much to talk about. There's, there's a lot going on in Maryland, um, and there's a lot going on nationally, but I want to bring this show back to Maryland. And so – Dr. Kramer, let's just start with a big, a major announcement from my own congressman here in Maryland 6th Congressional District. Congressman John Delaney, who has represented Maryland 6th Congressional District since January of 2013, announced on Friday in a Washington Post editorial uh, that he will be running not for re-election and not, as some have said, for governor, but rather he's going to be running for president of the United States a United States congressman running for president of the United States right here in Maryland. No, it's not Martin O'Malley. It's John Delaney. So what do you make of that, Dr. Cromer? Is this something that is um, 
way outside of the mainstream, or is this something that is this race that John Delaney is embarking upon? Um, could you see him as a formidable contender? As what will be, I imagine, a massive primary for the Democrats in 2020. Well, um, I think massive primary is a great way to describe it because while John Delaney might be the first, he certainly is not going to be the last. This is, I think this primary is going to look an awful lot like um, what we saw on the Republican side in 2016 where everybody and anybody gets in. Yeah. Uh, and so it, that, that, I think for me, I, that makes it – those of us who love politics almost as a spectator sport um, and who can't wait to watch the next debate and, and watch every moment of that 2016 campaign – uh, it makes it, it does make it a little bit exciting to see all the different candidates put their hat in the ring. And for us in Maryland, you know, a little state might have two presidential candidates, so not just John Delaney, but I would be surprised um, if Martin O'Malley didn't give it another run as well. And so that at least will bring some attention to our state, and it will give Marylanders, um, I think, a little bit more stake in the presidential election. Normally we're an afterthought. Uh, we have not, very few electoral votes. The primary is typically decided by the time it comes to Maryland. So at least I think it'll uh, get up some excitement uh, here. I I agree, and it's very exciting. I've been following John Delaney's career since he jumped into Congress, and before he came to Congress, he had two companies that he took public, and he made a lot of money. And I believe at one point he was ranked as the United States Congress's third richest member. And that, that says a lot because, of course, we know that there's many wealthy members of Congress. And I believe the first most wealthiest member of Congress, if, if it hasn't changed by now, it should be California Congressman Daryl Issa, who is famously known for the radar detectors, the Viper radar. He was the one who, um, I guess, sold these and then he sold his company for millions of dollars. And then now he's serving as a United States congressman. Um, so I so, think that's, the, that's an important point to talk about then. So the wealth does make a difference. Um, sure. And it makes a difference particularly because he has the ability to throw his hat in the ring early, earlier. So he doesn't need campaign funding from outside sources to sustain him in these early months, early years of his campaign. Because he's independent wealthy, he has the ability to start earlier than a lot of other individuals who don't have that um, economic ability. It's a good point. Uh, that's why I think starting now and throwing your hat so early, three and a half years to um, a, you know, the first votes. I mean, it's like 1900 days until um, some of these caucuses and primaries begin. And here John Delaney is throwing his hat into the ring and he's going on a tour um, and he's releasing videos on Facebook. Um, I've known John for quite some time, and I've had the opportunity to interview him, spend some time, a lot of time with him. And he's an incredibly smart guy that is policy-oriented, who is detailed, who understands federal policy inside and out. He can break down an issue and have a conversation about it. I've been to several of his – well, not several, but a, a few of his town halls, and John is just very good at what he does. I think John's issue at this point – is that his name recognition really, let's be fair, that not a whole lot of people know John Delaney's name in the political sphere outside of the state of Maryland. And even some people in Maryland didn't know John Delaney. And that was a, I wouldn't say a criticism, but that was a purported weakness that was um, thrown at John when he was considering running for governor. And so we should talk about that because John Delaney was thought that he was, for the longest time since last year, he was going to jump into this gubernatorial race and try to take on Larry Hogan. He put, out the, he put out a lot of feelers. He did well at the Western Maryland Democratic um, Summit that was held back uh, in late April. I, I was there to cover the event. <clears throat> and uh, Dr. Cromer, it was at that Western Maryland Democratic Summit on a Friday night at their cocktail reception – that I had a conversation with former Maryland Attorney General Doug Gansler. And Doug and I got into a conversation. And have you ever met the former Attorney General of Maryland, uh, Dr. Cromer? I have. Um, Doug Gansler <laughs> and I were actually on a panel um, for a program at WBAL. So, yes, I have met him before. He's a very animated guy. And I say that endearingly. I, I, I like him as a person. Um, and Doug is, a, is good. Yes. Yes, a, little bit of, I, a little bit of spunk is good. 
Yeah, I, I agree. In, in this political climate, we need that spunk. And it was we had a conversation together, and I, I said, okay, let me let me get your opinion on some of these candidates. And I asked him, are you considering running for governor in 2018? And he said, well, you know, I'm thinking about it. Um, I haven't made any hard decisions, but I'm I'm definitely looking at the race. And I said, well, what about Congressman John Delaney? And that's at that point he said. Well, John Delaney's running for office, but he's not running for governor. And at that point, we were all convinced John was going to jump into the gubernatorial election because he was talking about state issues. He was paying for billboards to roam state circle to, um, I guess, intimidate or, uh, you know, kind of tweak Governor Hogan a bit on his support or non-support or tacit silence on Donald Trump. And so at that point, Doug Gansler said to me, well, he's he's not running for governor, but he's going to run for president. And I'm like, what? President of the <laughs> United States? And he said, yeah, he goes, John Delaney's going to announce for governor or he's not going to he's not going to run for for governor. He's going to run for an office. It's just not governor. And so, Dr. Cromer, I kept that in my back pocket. I reported on it. And then I saw the clip from Chris Matthews when he said, oh, John Delaney has this campaign office. And we all thought, was this a slip of the tongue? So we, you know, we put the buzz out into the stratosphere, and we started talking about it. And then on May 11th, um, Montgomery County MC media reporter Doug Talman asked John Delaney straight on, are you, think, are you running for president of the United States? And John Delaney said, and it's on video, oh, that's ridiculous. But here he is today running for president. This is what happens with political candidates. You, know, you ask a candidate a question, and then two months later, they're announcing their bid as the first Democratic um, candidate in the race. So here we are today. It's it's amusing. Right. It's amusing to watch. I, well, I think, and I think it's par for the course. Every politician does this. They're, they want to announce when they want to announce, not when you want them to announce. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, for John Delaney to run, um, what I think will be most interesting, and this is my thought in general about the Democratic primary here in Maryland for the governor's race, but also democratic politics in general going forward. Does he run as um, a centrist, a policy-centered centrist, a realist, a pragmatist, um, or do you see him uh, try to pivot a little bit more to the left? Um, to get elected, obviously, in Western Maryland, he's, he, you can't run as a far-left progressive. Um, but, it'll, but that I've seen some like, mixed messages coming out um, of his campaign thus far. The word progressive has been thrown around. I will be very interested to see and see if somebody will run as as the centrist Democratic candidate. An yeah, kind of like Jim Webb did. It would be similar to how Jim Webb ran his campaign in 2016, and he was on stage, and many people from both sides of the aisle felt comfortable voting for Jim Webb. That's what I've heard from my Republican friends. They said, "Well, Jim Webb would be an excellent candidate for vice president." Of course, he's a former. United States Senator from Virginia. Um, I believe he was at one time a Republican. He was, I think, Secretary of the Navy um, a long time ago. And John Delaney is a policy wonk. I've been around him. I've watched his speeches. I've watched him on one and, an issue. And he's telling his narrative now. He's, get, he's telling people who he is and why he is running. But you're right. The question is, if he were running in the gubernatorial primary and here in Maryland, Dr. Cromer, would John have had to tack to the, to the far left? I mean, would he be competing with, let's just say, a Ben Jealous or a Rich Madalino who is arguably going to suck up those progressive votes and is going to be competing in places like Tacoma Park and other portions of Montgomery County? And then in PG in Baltimore City, could John have won a gubernatorial primary given that he's a moderate – and, and he would describe himself as a progressive, but a progressive with a a a not not anywhere close to being a Jamie Raskin. Could do you think if John had run in Maryland, could he have won that primary? That's uh, he certainly has. I think would have the money and the infrastructure to put up a campaign. But winning a primary is difficult, and you need to have those um, those sort of fundamentals to be able to get through it. And I think he's certainly somebody who knows how to run and win a campaign. And in and, and, and and the district, sixth district, certainly one that has a uh, it's a lot of a lot more difficult for a Democrat than at other places in the state. 
So, sure, I think that he would have, would have been a really competitive candidate. At this stage of the game, and I will say this, I would say this as a pollster, we have not even seen the first poll yet. Right. So, I'm not sure who is the front runner or who would have won, but now we, we can talk about the gubernatorial race without John Delaney because he has moved on to, I, I suppose, greener pastures or high, I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. Higher and pastures, just, higher mountains, higher aspirations. I don't know. So, that was just- <laughs> That was the sticking point, Dr. Cromer. That was the sticking point. John, everybody was waiting, including many of the gubernatorial candidates, for John Delaney to decide what the heck he's going to do. Had he jumped in, that would have changed the, the, the tone of the race. That would have changed the dynamics for many of the candidates. Um, and let's talk about the gubernatorial race. Of course, we don't have any polling data, um, but – Look at some of the individuals who are running. You have Ben Jealous, who is who was endorsed by Bernie Sanders a few weeks ago, has the Our Revolution support. There is uh, County Executive Risharam Baker of Prince George's County. There's Kevin Kamenitz of Baltimore County, who is looking to jump in, and that's probably a very likely thing that he's going to do in maybe September. Um, and then you have Jim Shea. You have Alec Ross, and you have Rich Madalino, a state senator here in Montgomery County where I live, and maybe a few others. And then last week, I, I broke some news when I was at a Western Maryland Democratic uh, – or I'm sorry, I would say a, 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 Mar- a women's, Maryland women's Democratic event up in Hagerstown, Maryland – Krishante and I'm, I know I'm going to butcher her last name, so maybe I shouldn't even try, but um, – former Michelle Obama policy director had made a comment that she is looking at the gubernatorial race. And so is um, Elijah Cummings' wife, Maya Rockamore. So this is going to be a scattered field and nobody knows what's going to happen. Wouldn't you agree? No, no I, I, I would totally agree. Um, and I think it makes it a little bit more exciting. Uh, there's nothing I think better for individuals than to have um, a choice. So that's the positive spin on it, right? So now, now Democrats who are vote, um, who will vote in their primary will get to choose from a large cross section of candidates. They all they all have their individual strengths. Nobody, no 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 real candidate will get into a gubernatorial race without actually having their own set of issues and own set of strengths. But on the other hand, that means that an individual with this many candidates can win with a small percentage of the vote. So it breaks it up enough that you might not get a consensus candidate. You'll get somebody with 17 or 20% of the vote at the most, mm-hmm. and they have to go on to, um, face, to face Larry Hogan in the general. And that, that's where it becomes interesting if whoever makes it through the primary can then coalesce the rest of the support once they win, if you can see the Democratic Party coming together. And that will depend on how um, hotly contested and how brutal the primary is. I want to throw another wrench at you. John Delaney okay. is analytical, very much so. Everything, is, he, he tests data, and as a former businessman, he makes decisions based upon the facts at his disposal, and he uses those facts to make business decisions. And that's what he's done, and, and by all accounts, he's been very successful at that. Had John Delaney looked at all the data, given the strength and popularity of Governor Hogan in the state of Maryland based on your own polling, Dr. Cromer, do you think that he opted out of this race knowing that it may have been a real possibility that he could have lost to a sitting governor, a Republican nonetheless, in the state of Maryland in 2018? Well, I've heard this theory thrown around um, that perhaps some internal polling to John Delaney um, suggested that the, the 2018 gubernatorial race was um, not winnable for a Democrat. I'm not so sure. I mean, with a, with a two-to-one Democratic-Republican ratio, it's – I think a Democrat will always be be competitive in a in a statewide race, um, regardless of how popular the governor is. Um, but what I really do think is that John Delaney um, sees an opening at the presidential level, and perhaps as a member of Congress, he really felt his next logical step was not the governor's the governor's mansion, but um, the White House. And so, seeing that opening, perhaps at a time where Maybe individual, maybe American voters are looking for somebody who's very policy-centered, who's not a firebrand. And, and, you know, say what you will about not having low name recognition, John Delaney also doesn't have a ton of baggage. So no. perhaps that we know not of. having the name recognition, maybe that is, that, that's a good thing. 
Mm-hmm. So in the history of presidential politics, politics in general, we had a couple of people who went from the president's or was, was served in Congress then later served in the Senate. But was it only one person ever in the history of presidents went from the House to the presidency? I think that was one person. Um, and I'm trying to remember who the heck it was. Was it Garfield? Could have been. I, I can't remember. You're, you're killing me this morning <laughs> with this trivia. Now, now I'm sitting here like, should I Google this? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but no, but there, there have, but there also haven't been a ton of presidents. It's, it's not a, you know, it's not like a sample size of a thousand or anything, right? Yeah. And so, um, every single individual who runs makes it to the highest office of the land. Um, these, these are unique individuals. So yes, you can set, you know, you can point to some typical background. But I think that, you know, this last election cycle shows, shows us anything that you do not need to have a quote-unquote standard political background to be the president of the United States, apparently. You're exactly right, and that's, that's very unique. So looking at the Democratic race, um, without any polling, but let's talk about what we're hearing on the street. We, you and I both hear the chatter um, because we ingratiate ourselves in male and political circles to learn as much as possible so we can have these conversation and make value-based, fact-based analysis. So what are you hearing on the ground as far as some of the Democratic candidates who are running? Where do you think that they where, – where is that ranking at this point? Um, and what, what would you say to people who have already picked a candidate and said, oh, that person's going to win – should, is that much, much too early at this point? Well, I don't think anybody – there should be nobody who's picking a candidate and saying that they are going to win. There is, that is, I think, the interesting and um, fun part in a lot of ways about our uh, democratic, the Democratic race here on this side is because there isn't a front runner, um, that it really is anybody's game. And that, you know, there will be some candidates who certainly will be um, advantaged in terms of fundraising, um, but there are also just, there's enough candidates with enough unique background that if if Democratic voters choose to pay attention, I think they'll find a lot in which they like, and they'll mm-hmm. find and I think that they will find a, I think a wide variety of experiences and issues in which uh, each of the candidates will highlight. And so at this point, no, I don't think there's a front runner. Um, I don't. I, I'm sure that people who that in, among the activists who pay a lot of attention have people that they like the most. But there's really no indication to me that there's somebody ahead of the pack at this point. Yeah. Well, I think that that's a great point. And all the major regions where Democrats need to do well, you have a regional candidate. Look, Prince George's County, the county executive is running who is term limited, and uh, he's going to be running for governor. Baltimore County, another big region of the state that um, could pull a lot of votes. Um, At Montgomery County, you have – Rich Maddaleno is a popular progressive state senator. All these guys are going to take a wide chunk of, of, of these counties. So like you mentioned earlier in the program, they could win with foreseeably, what, 16, 17% of the vote. They don't have to get a plurality. They, they just have to, to pick off enough Democrats around the state um, that is going to put them over the top. And I told yesterday I had a conversation. I went to a rally to cover it down in Annapolis, it was a healthcare rally. And I saw some of the candidates there, some of the gubernatorial candidates spoke, Ben Jealous, Rich Madalino, and um, Alec Ross, they were there. And Rich, no, I rather, um, one of Ben Jealous's volunteers and I were talking off to the side and he said, well, how can Ben win? And I said, I have no idea how he can win um, the primary because there's going to be a lot of people. But I can tell you, don't ignore the Eastern Shore in Western Maryland. They could easily put some of these candidates over the top, um, just like Larry Hogan when he ran in 2014. As you, re- as you well remember, he spent a lot of time on the shore and up in Western Maryland corralling those Republicans that normally otherwise wouldn't come out to vote. And he put them over the top. I mean, some counties like Carroll County, he won 80% of the vote. That's huge. Could the same effect happen again where um, he's very popular, um, but could he, could he lose some votes too, Dr. Cromer, given that he didn't full on embrace President Trump? Um, so Governor Hogan's approval rating among Republicans is in the 90% at this point. 
So that's what we did that when we ran our last poll. I, I don't, this is after he decided not to vote for, um, de- declared he was not going to vote for President Trump. Um, and there's, there's no indication to me that Republicans are any less enthusiastic about Larry Hogan. And so I have no doubt in my mind that once we get through the Democratic primary, once they have their, their nominee, when Republicans look at that choice in front of them on the other side of the aisle, they will be just as happy to cast their vote for Larry Hogan as they were in 2014. I, I just point. really don't see a lot of that and the Trump effect happening uh, in the opposite way among Republicans in Maryland. They seem quite happy with the guy they have. During the election, however, there were some rumblings that people were interested in looking for an alternative to Larry Hogan to the right of Larry. And that hasn't transpired. And And I can tell you, um, many people knew our, our departed friend, Joe Stefan. Joe Stefan was a <laughs> – he worked for the Ehrlich administration. Um, he was sort of the political henchman. Um, he would be the equivalent to, I don't know, in the, in the Trump administration. I wouldn't say a Steve Bannon, but maybe an Anthony Scaramucci. Um, he was brought in to straighten things up, and it didn't work out so well for Joe but Joe was seriously contemplating a gubernatorial run against Larry from the right. And, of course, Joe has um, – he passed on in January of this year. But I haven't heard any other candidates coming out of the woodwork to challenge the governor of any credibility whatsoever. I'm sure, I'm sure that some Republican activists, they're still frustrated with the governor on several issues. They're frustrated with him on the Second Amendment issues. I hear all the time from my friends on the Republican side that Larry just hasn't done enough for gun rights in the state of Maryland. He hasn't done enough to to combat the SB 281 bill, um, or he hasn't done enough on the socially conservative side. And I just hear Republicans grumbling about how Larry hasn't done enough. Republicans in Western Maryland wanted him to support fracking, but he didn't. And he keeps defying the odds, and I hate using this word maverick, but I think in a sense, if you look at Larry Hogan's tenure thus far as governor, he's been very much so a maverick, and it's really hard to dislike him. You can find something that you can agree with him on, and the Democrats in Maryland have hit back and hit back and hit back. But Dr. Cromer, have the attacks on Hogan, have they actually stuck? Is there something tangible that they could really point to and say Larry Hogan as a governor has failed the state of Maryland in the last four years. Well, okay, so let's take a step back to the point you made um, about the grumbling, right? So I will say that grumblings are not random samples. Um, and so right. while some individuals might be, <laughs> might grumble a little bit, um, I don't, they don't, I do not think they, well, I know that they don't, they don't represent um, Republicans at large who give uh, Larry Hogan really strong favor, uh, really strong job approval ratings. So sure, a few activists may be unhappy that he hasn't been able to push hard enough back on, on some gun rights issues, but the, those individuals probably also recognize that Governor Hogan presides over uh, or, or has to work with a Democratic General Assembly with a veto-proof majority. So really, what, what, what can he do in that, in that situation? And right. so I just, I just don't see, I mean, maybe somebody decides to challenge Larry Hogan for the primary. I doubt that that campaign or that candidate that will go very far <laughs> at all. I agree. At the last, um, the last report, do you know how much, approximately how much Larry Hogan has cash on hand at, at this juncture? I, I don't know the exact figure. It's a lot. I, and, I, and I can't remember off the top of my head either. It is, it is a formidable number. And, and keep in mind, this, so this is the, I think, the most important thing to remember about Larry, Larry Hogan he is no longer an upstart businessman who held, you know, had a position in the Ehrlich administration and then started this, this interesting grassroots change Maryland. Um, he's no longer the individual who won a surprising victory over the Democratic candidate. This is somebody who's a rising star now in the Republican Party. Um, he's heavily involved with the Republican Governors Association. Uh, he will get um, support from the, the larger party infrastructure. Uh, they want to make sure that Larry Hogan maintains this seat. And so, no, I, I, just, I just don't see another candidate coming in to challenge Larry Hogan. And I, and I, I see him as he, he will be a, a, a well-funded 
um, really formidable opponent for whoever the Democratic challenger may be. Now, that being said, I don't think that he's bulletproof. I don't think that there's no way somebody can unseat him. I think it's gonna, but I do think it's going to be a very competitive general election. That's why I said earlier in the program that knowing John Delaney, who tests everything, who who is data driven, and would not have would have probably run ha- having thought that he could have ousted Larry Hogan. Um, uh, he would have been in the gubernatorial ele- race in a hot second had he really thought that he could have won. And that's what brings me back to this point. Um, well, Larry Hogan is not indestructible. I, this is a Democratic state. Look what happened last time, last year. We had a statewide candidate in Kathy Shalega, and she got trounced by Chris Van Hollen. But Kathy Shalega is not Larry Hogan. Um, and neither is any other statewide Republican candidate. I think Larry falls into a special category where, look, he has a narrative now. This is this is important to remember. He has a narrative. Here's a first-term governor who is the second most popular ranked governor in the country behind Massachusetts, <laughs> another very blue state, um, their governor, Charlie Baker. This is a guy who in his first term, first term, had stage three non non Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is, you know, it's it, it's a miracle that he has recovered so well. Um, he faced a crisis in his in, in the first few months of his term um, uh, with Baltimore City's riots. Um, he's had successful legislative sessions. A few of his, of course, a few of his um, bills have been overridden, but he hasn't done anything that has really upset a lot of people. Now there's various different policy points that you can disagree with him on. And, you know, some people, especially parents, were upset about um, pushing schools back to Labor Day where they thought that the local counties could have had done that. And then but Democrats seem, Dr. Cromer, to continue to tie him to Donald Trump. They try to make this parallel. They draw a comparison between Trump and Larry Hogan. And I just keep telling my friends on the Democratic side It's not sticking. It's not going to work. Maybe in hardcore progressive Democratic circles in Maryland and in, say, where I live down in Montgomery County, but Dr. Cromer, it's just not working. The attacks aren't sticking because I look at Larry Hogan and I look at the president of the United States. I don't see hardly any comparisons. Well, okay, so so you made a a point earlier I'd like to – about the post-Labor Day start – Keep in mind, um, I, maybe, again, a non-random sample of parents were grumbling about it, but by and large, um, Marylanders really did support the post, post-Labor Day start. We pulled on it a few times. It's really stable. Right around mm-hmm. a, um, 75% of Marylanders wanted um, or supportive of the post-Labor Day start. And so this is a, so something I think that Larry Hogan has been very good at um, is he identifies issues that, um, uh, that really that Marylanders like. And there's this weird thing that goes on that people, just because it's popular doesn't mean it's wrong. So government mm-hmm. should reflect the will of the people. Um, and if you find if there's a policy issue or change that um, is, is popular, um, and he, you know, Larry Hogan obviously and the Comptroller, Comptroller Peter Francho believe that this kind of small tweak, this small change will bring economic development to the state. And if people are supportive of it, um, then that, that is a lot of ways that people, somebody could argue that's how you make good policy by passing things that, you know, the, the, the people like it keeps people. I mean, and so, and then, but of course, and I completely understand the argument on the other side, um, about how it should be local control with school, with school boards deciding the calendar, mm-hmm. but this is just one, I'm just using this as an, um, as a way to talk about Larry, how well Larry Hogan has done at identifying issues and understanding public opinion. So as a pollster, it's near and near to my heart to see a politician who really understands the contours of what uh, public sentiment, and I think it's really important. And the next, and whoever the Democrat, um, the Democratic candidate may be, uh, they should be careful uh, students of Maryland public opinion as well. For public opinion on the Democratic side, what do you think some of the line of attacks will be on the governor? Can you predict that? I mean, what uh, some I know they're already talking about schools, school funding, some of the more policy oriented attacks on the governor. But do you see anything? Do you see any specific tangible 
point that they're going to pluck out and each of the Democrats will attack the governor on that might really stick among some voters in Maryland that could dwindle his poll numbers or could bring down and lower his popularity. Sure. And I, and I tend to agree with you um, in terms of the Trump effect. So I, I believe that there is, a, there are certainly um, some Democrats who tie Trump to Hogan very, very closely. And those are individuals who won't vote for Larry Hogan anyway. Sure. And so it's not really for Larry Hogan. His path of victory isn't by winning progressive Democrats. His path to victory is getting enough of those moderate or conservative, the moderate or conservative Democrats who just are really interested in hearing um, that tax and the, the tax cuts and economic development message. That's how he went on them in 2014, and that's what will carry them for him um, in 2018. And the more um, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this, the more colorful the president of the United States, um, his behavior becomes. Uh, the farther and farther away he looks from Larry Hogan, right? Larry Hogan is a, a measured, careful politician who doesn't put out, doesn't tweet things at people off the cuff. Um, he's just a very different political animal than the president. And so that makes it increasingly difficult to tie, to tie those two together. But it, there it are certainly, some issues. Go ahead. It certainly does. The, there's there's a, a wide separation between where the president of the United States is, who um, is reflexive and if something is on his mind, he takes to Twitter to criticize and he takes on the media. The, the only person, the only person in the media that um, Larry Hogan has really taken on is certain editorialists at the Baltimore Sun. But other than that, he's not launched a full-on barrage against any media outlet or, or network. So we haven't seen that from him. No, and there's a, there's a, there's a difference between having, um, so not agreeing with somebody's opinion or editorial and then calling them fake news. So right. not, I mean, there, there's a dramatic difference between those two things. It's, it's okay to push back and have a, 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 um, a fair exchange of ideas, especially if it's an idea coming out from an, an editorial page. So mm-hmm. it's okay to respond, but as long as the response Absolutely. is measured um, and – and doesn't try to completely undercut journalistic values, of course. Absolutely. Let's talk about polling because that's your specialty. Okay. A lot of people around the country believe polling is faulty because they use the example that Hillary Clinton was supposed to win the election. Um, however, she kind of did um, on the pop on the popular vote side, and most of the polls had her exactly where. She ended up, but in some of the swing states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, they were very close until the very end, and people have discounted the science and polling. So let's break that down. Should we trust the polls, Dr. Cromer, and are, have they let us down <laughs> in the last couple of years? Well, I, well, so short answer is yes. Yes, you should trust the polls. So let's break it down. So, so let's first, first of all take let's look at the general election numbers. They projected that Hillary Clinton would win the popular vote, and lo and behold, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. She did. So, um, I, I think it's really important. So we also that it's, it's in terms of interpreting poll numbers appropriately, and I think that is actually one of the major problems today. So as polls have proliferated as part of American public discourse, the knowledge that's associated with understanding and interpreta- interpreting the science behind polling has not grown at the same rate. So when I say that Larry Hogan has an approval, um, if Larry Hogan is going against, let's just say, um, so if it's, if the Hogan-Brown race, and let's say they're within a few percentage points with each other. So Hogan had 51% and um, Anthony Brown had 49%. But the plus or minus on that individual poll was 4.5%, which is the, you know, the margin of error, which is associated with the sample size. So that means that the range of potential outcomes ranges within that 4.5%. So if, if 51% is what, um, it was, is what you're pulling at, like you technically could really range anywhere from like 54% all the way down to 48, 47 or 48%. So you have this really range of potential outcomes. So the problem is when we see races become very close, so when the polls show that it's a, you know, 40, it's a 48, 49, well, let's say, oh, so-and-so is up a point. Well, no, technically not, because most polls are going to will have anywhere 
between like a 3% margin of error up to a 4.5% margin of error. That's, the typical, that's typically what we see with the standard sample sizes. So it's important to start interpreting polls when you factor in the margin of error. So you have to consider that when you're thinking about who's actually ahead or who's behind. So I think that's the most important thing. Um, another thing is uh, people got caught up um, with the 538 Real Clear Politics HuffPost pollster, their sure. kind of prediction models. So I'll hear this all the time. Well, it will polls, you know, 80%. Hillary Clinton was polling at 80%. No, she wasn't polling at 80%. They, they assigned 80% as the, her likelihood of victory given all the different statewide polls. But if you start to break down and look at those individual statewide polls and you look at the trajectory from, let's say, um, August down until the nitty-gritty into late October, you do see a narrowing effect. And when you look at the individual polls that came out in those last few, like last week or so before the election, even in the swing states, they, a lot of them were within that margin of error. So there, there wasn't a dramatic miss. Yes, there was some miss. Um, particularly the Wisconsin was particularly bad, but there was not a dramatic overestimation or underestimation. Um, but it's important that people um, look at individual polls, evaluate them as individuals, look at the results, and not just put all their um, eggs in the kind of election forecasting basket. Does that make sense? <laughs> it makes total sense. And so my follow-up question to you is that there's always an implicit bias when somebody reads a poll and they read it and it, and it tr somehow triggers a reaction. When I look at a poll and I think, how could – for someone like myself, and I look at, okay, Donald Trump's – he's hovering between 35 and 40 percent. And I think, okay, he, he's, he's had a arguably interesting rocky start to his presidency, and – He's done some things that have upset people, but he's still polling at 36%. And then among Republicans, he's at 80%. So let me ask you this question. When you conduct a poll, how do you gather the data? Where does it come from? How do you talk to people? And can you trust that data? Well, um, I, can, I, I can speak to my organization, um, and I can speak to other organizations that get I, I cleared through um, – APOR's transparency initiative, which I'll talk about in a second. So I will tell you this. The, the cool thing about the Goucher poll is that I'm actually in the room when the students are doing the calling. So every, mm -hmm. we do everything in-house. So I, I, train all the, um, I train all the students. Uh, they conduct all the interviews. I'm there every single night of the week that we're calling. Um, and so it's a, it's a fully kind of completely, complete control of the data in-house operation. So we purchase, our, um, we purchase a random sample of, of cell phones and landlines from a company called Survey Sampling International. Um, they're um, a, a large nationwide firm. That they, su they supply telephone numbers to all the major polling firms like Quinnipiac and Marist and whatnot. Um, and so we, we, uh, I, I purchase numbers, um, a random sample of Marylanders, cell phones and landlines. The students call on that, um, on that sample for around four days, uh, four, anyway, four to five days. Uh, it's, and it's not as simple as like just calling through a list of numbers. I don't print out numbers and have them each call. Um, we have a, a, a survey software called VoxCo that does mm -hmm. some really cool randomization techniques where um, if your number, perhaps I call you and your number is busy, well, we'll call that back that number in 20 minutes. Or if there's a no answer, then we'll call back that number in two hours or we'll call back that number on the next day at a certain time. The, pro, the, the computer program does some really sophisticated things to try to increase that response rate and to give and every individual the equal opportunity to take the survey. Because that, that's how random sampling works. It, the assumption is that if I will buy a random sample of numbers, that each individual has um, the same propensity or the same opportunity to actually take the survey. Now, we know that that does vary across different demographics. You know, African-Americans have a lower response rate than their white counterparts, and white women over the age of 65 love to answer surveys. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's very true. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, and young people are the, the most difficult to get on the phone. So if you have any younger listeners out there, I beg you, when I send a pollster calls you to please answer the survey, particularly men ages 18 to 25 are our toughest demographic to get. 
Um, and so, again, we'll call all week, and then usually at the end of the week, I will do some post-survey um, post weighting to make sure that, that our sample looks like Maryland. So the best thing about the census is, is it gives us a really nice look at what Maryland is supposed to look like in terms of demographics. And so I make sure after we're calling all week that our demographics are ways to look like the Maryland population. Um, and then from there, uh, if, there's, <clears throat> if I do likely voter, I will screen out anybody who says that they are not, you know, that aren't, were not, do not identify themselves as a likely voter. And so there's a couple different things, uh, different techniques you can use. I will say that as long as, if, if you follow the standard methodology, you're, there's always a chance that you'll be off. So mm -hmm. we, uh, I have 90, 95%, I have 95% confidence um, in the numbers that they will be plus or minus whatever my margin of error is. And there are always outlier polls, and there's always mistakes that can be made. Social science is not like the natural sciences. We, we, can't, we can't predict things foolproof, but I think that polls by and large have done a really good job. And nobody seems to care about all the places the polls got right. They only care about the places that the polls got wrong. And that's what's really frustrating. I, I, can, I can understand that. Um, given that Maryland is a blue state, there is it's a, a two to one um, mm -hmm. versus Republicans. However, um, on the in Western Maryland, where I grew up, you have Garrett, Allegheny, and Washington, and major portions of Frederick, um, and then it goes down to Carroll. Many of these out, many of these other counties. Uh, what? 20, there's 23 counties in Maryland. A majority of these counties are very Republican counties. But then the concentration mm -hmm. of the population is where I live in Montgomery County now, Prince George's County, Baltimore, Baltimore City. And that's what invariably seems to swing elections to um, the, the Democrats, but of course not in the last election. Um, have you ever had any Democrats say after you released a poll about Larry Hogan, you know, Dr. Cromer, this is just this is craziness. He, he can't possibly be that popular here in the state of Maryland. What gives? Is this really factual? Have you ever had that? Have you ever had any pushback against some of your polls? All the time. We get pushed back all the time. Hate mail all the time. So, I mean, it's, it's fine. It is what it is. Well, I mean, I say that like not, I, I do not get anywhere near like a nasty, like when I say a nasty gram from like the occasional poll reader will say that my numbers are fake news, that I'm biased, but I usually get it on both ends. So I'm really satisfied with myself. So for That's every good. person who doesn't like, uh, the fact that Larry Hogan has a 72% approval rating, there are, on the other hand, people who don't like the fact that a $15 minimum wage pulls at 60%. So yeah, I, that's... So there's a, sometimes a lot to love and a lot to hate about polling. Um, I, I also get this every single time I release a poll. Somebody will email me and say that I only talked to 700 Marylanders. How could I possibly be able to predict what millions of people in the state say. I get that, that, that email every time I release a poll. And my only response to people um, is usually, thank you for your interest in the Goucher poll. Um, but secondly, my response is uh, that, you know, if you think about, think about a bowl of soup, you don't need to eat the entire bowl of soup to tell me the, the soup is spicy. You don't even need to eat half the bowl of soup. You just need one properly stirred spoonful to tell me what the soup tastes like. And that's exactly – that's the science behind random sampling. I did a polling. Uh, somebody had called me on oh, last <laughs> – well, it was interesting. Somebody called me last Tuesday or – I think it was either Tuesday or Wednesday night, um, and they had they – had, I had taken a poll about the news media, and it, it, the thing went on forever. Um, they asked me several questions about um, where I would rank certain media outlets and – where, what do I watch? Um, what what my thoughts are on the president? And cool, so okay. I did. Yeah, it was it was it was unique. Um, yeah, they they wanted to box me into a category of like, where do you stand you know, politically? Are you Republican, Democrat, or neither? And I'm like, well, I'm I'm not either. I'm 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 an independent. Um, they couldn't grasp that. She just kept asking, well, are you Republican or Democrat? And I'm like, I'm neither. You, you just, you threw that out there. I'm neither. Um, and 
it, it's, it's, I think it's, I, I'm sure that many pollsters would rather, <laughs> you know, respond and say, well, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, but they, they have to create more categories. You know, what about the libertarians? Well, what about the, the independents? So, we, so that's actually really strange that they would try to force you into that. That's, that's strange that they would try to force you into a category in which you yeah, don't actually yeah. fit. That's certainly not something that we do. We um, Our party identification question uh, asks if you're Democrat, Independent, um, Republican, Liber- um, or, I think, or something else, um, mm-hmm. just because of the low uh, – yeah, Democrat, Republican, Independent, or something else, and then we allow people to self-identify as Green Party or Libertarian or anything else that they might be. Um, and so it seems strange to me that they would try to force you into a party ideology that you're not. Um, they may have asked you if you lean. If you're an Independent, typically we will follow up and ask, in elections if you lean towards the Republican or Democratic Party as a follow-up because a lot of independents are actually um, leaners, that they declare themselves an independent, but really when it comes to voting in elections, they always vote for the Republican candidate or they always vote for the Democratic candidate. So they're really not independent. They're just they're partisan leaners. Let me ask you a question about mm-hmm. at, at, at the time of the 2014 election, were you at Goucher, and were you doing polling? We were, but we this is before we started doing Likely Voter. So okay. um, when I, so we started in 2012, and I'll be honest with you, the, the purpose of the Goucher poll is I do not want to become just a horse race poll. Um, sure. I'm, I'm personally more interested um, in policy issues. So I'm right. interested in these uh, just interesting nuances of public sentiment in the state, and I don't want to spend all my time – just doing the head-to-head races. Um, and so that's really what we, for the first few years of the Goucher poll, that's all I did was really just policy issues. Um, I did some favorability ratings and some job approval ratings, but um, back in 2014, if, if you were going to ask that I was surprised at what happened, I think I was surprised along with everybody else in the state. Yeah, Except course. for, um, and then I always have to give a shout out, I think, uh, to, the, to Hogan's pollster, the, the the WPA I think is um, is the his the pollster that he used in 2014 and they nailed it. So at the end they released a poll that showed him uh, Hogan pulling um, slightly ahead I think of Anthony Brown and I always give credit where credit is due to any but any pollster who can nail the outcome of election. Yeah, um, and I agree, and that's important. And I think people are going to keep their eye on the Goucher polling, and I look forward to how the candidates are ranked on the Democratic side. It's going to be the real horse race, and that's and in and admittedly, Dr. Kerm, I'm interested in that, and I'm interested in the politics. Um, we're all watching closely where the candidates are going, what they're doing. We're following the day-to-day um, media, their tweets. But on the gubernatorial, I mean, the gubernatorial election obviously will be another big issue, um, if not the biggest race. And then we have a U.S. Senate race coming up, um, and. Of course, I don't think we've had an official announcement from Senator Cardin, but it's, it, it appears that he's going to run for re-election by all indications. By my sources tell me that he's going to run for re-election. Have you heard anything otherwise? No, and you know I haven't really been focusing on the Senate race at all. Um, we'll certainly, um, we'll certainly most likely pull on it, um, but not right now. Our focus certainly for the Goucher poll for the for the fall. So we'll, we'll do something in September, like we do every single year. Um, we will likely gauge some of the, the name recognition and favorability ratings of each of the, the Democratic gubernatorial candidates. We'll revisit Hogan's approval rating. Um, I will probably ask some questions about um, Marylanders' views of the Trump, the, the Trump administration and then try to um, uh, check back in with some of those most important policy issues. You mentioned this earlier, and we kind of got off topic, you said, well, you know, what were, the, what were some of the policy issues in which you think the Democrats will try to needle Governor Hogan with? And, and I really think um, paid sick leave um, and mm. the veto of the green, jo- of green jobs, those are the two things that I, uh, I suspect will be the major kind of policy issues the Democrats um, will try, you know, when they push back against Larry Hogan will be. Um, and that's because I, I will say this, that Marylanders certainly have an environmental lean. We've asked several questions about environmental politics in the past. Um, and then, secondly, paid sick leave has, uh, has a lot of support um, uh, uh, from from the general public. I mean, it, we we've asked about it a few times, and it's polls around 75, 80 percent. Wow. So people are supportive of paid sick leave. So it's really it's one of those issues 
um, that in that the, the governor will have to tread carefully on, and you know, and and that's obviously obviously evidenced by the fact that his veto came with an executive order um, to try to to and, and a promise to try to uh, work to develop a better bill. Um, right, and, and, and it's a nuanced I, policy position that the governor will be. It's incumbent upon him and his team and his communications professional to break down why he vetoed it and, and explain why so that he can relay to the general public that they, they, they wanted a better bill um, and not as it stood. So I, I think that's important to point out there. Right, and I think it's important to point out um, further the, the further difference between President uh, Trump and Governor Larry Hogan is that it seems that uh, Governor Larry Hogan actually listens to his communications professionals, um, <laughs> on the, whereas I don't think Donald Trump really has. <laughs> well, um, uh, you know, maybe now that the mooch is um, roaming the White House with um, his swear jar. Um, so we'll, we'll, we will see. We will see. Um, look, here's another, you know, we have a few minutes left in the show. Um, Dr. Cromer, uh, we're, we're not expecting too much hoopla in some of these other races. But where I live in the 6th Congressional District down here in Montgomery County in North Potomac, um, it's, this district stretches you know, all the way from the borders of literally Potomac, Maryland, up to um, the borders of western Pennsylvania, you know, portions of Pennsylvania up in Garrett County. So here we go. Um, we have several candidates that are going to be jumping in on the Democratic side to replace Congressman Delaney um, does Goucher intend to do any polling um, on that specific race? No, we we do not um, we do not do uh, individual congressional races. So we're a okay. statewide poll, um, and so no, we won't be doing that. Um, unless some um, philanthropist wants to donate a couple million dollars to the Syracuse mm. Politics Center, well then may- <laughs> then maybe no. But a polling costs a lot of money, and so good polling costs a lot of money, and so you know so we have the independent funding to produce uh, two to three polls each year, um, and that's it. And so our, we were independently funded by, the, by um, the, our, our endowment. So the Sarah T. Hughesville Politics Center is funded by um, a donation made by the late judge, Sarah Tillman Hughes, who mm-hmm. is the judge who swore in LBJ after Kennedy was shot. She was a Goucher, she's a Goucher alum. And so wow. we, are, we are thankful and grateful for that money, um, and it allows us to do this really great public service. But because we don't take money from outside sources, it also prevents us from doing any sort of polling um, for your county executive races or for congressional seats. Okay. Okay. Um, what should Marylanders be thinking about as they take a look at all these different candidates? What, um, where should the focus be? My hope is that it's on policy. I hate the actual politics. You know, it's fun to watch, but – Let's let's face it. Let's have a I want people to I want Governor Hogan and I want the eventual Democratic nominee to focus on policy. I want to stay as far away from the 2016 election tone as possible, because I think it really had a negative effect on democracy. Let's hope that Marylanders take a look at what policies we agree with and disagree with and then size up the candidates based upon what they have done um, or their careers or their whatever they choose. That's. That's my hope, and I and I'm sure as a as a pollster, that is your hope as well, or somewhere in that vicinity. Right, and I wrote as much. I, I wrote an op-ed for the for the Baltimore Sun uh, addressing this very topic. That I think that we actually have the real opportunity in Maryland to right the wrong of 2016. So I I can't imagine what it felt like, and even though I'm at the ripe old age of 36, I cannot imagine what it felt like being 18 years old years of age. This is the first yeah. presidential election that you can vote in. And really, it to me was not a huge, it was not the best moment in American democracy. Uh, I agree. It's just the, the scandals and just the back and forth and just the, just the, the ridiculousness of all of it looking back. And, and, I, and I think of, that's why I like state politics so much that I think at the end of the day, state politics really, you can have a candidate like Larry Hogan who does have a, a, a mixed has a mixed bag of different issues that he supports, and then you, whoever the Democratic nominee can be. I look at any of those, those individuals running right now. Um, they all have serious policy chops. They, they, have, they have a different idea about the direction of the state than Larry Hogan does. But I think if they can just keep it centered to policy and let's allow the voters 
to, to choose between two alternatives um, and not pretend like the other guy is trying to ruin Maryland. <laughs> well, so I think that's, that's like so when I step, I step back and I look at any of the Democrats and I look at Larry Hogan, and I think they have two very different views on the direction of the state. Sure. But I think at the, at the heart of it, they care deeply about the state. Right. And that's, that's the point. And you look at an incident that we just had just occurred and we all we're on social media um, and I think back just a, a couple of weeks ago when John McCain was diagnosed with, um, with, with brain cancer, and I saw reactions from people all over the country, very warm, um, sympathetic, and understanding reactions. I mean, this is, this is no joke. This is a serious, serious illness that um, could very well likely um, end badly for um, Senator McCain. And Senator McCain is he's an American hero and he has done things that no other person should ever, ever have to go through um, when serving their country. And I I've seen people react in a way where they said, and they brought it back to the politics that they brought it back to the healthcare and they tried to use this illness to, to harm the Senator or make some sort of salient, what they thought might be a salient political point. And then you had John McCain's former um, opponent in the primary last year say that he should step down. And I just hope that that same thing doesn't happen in Maryland because it would really degrade the political process. And look, we're, we're at a point in American politics where it seems like anything goes, Dr. Cromer, where you can say and do anything without repercussions. There is a fundamental lack of decency in our politics. We've, and, and, and we've moved so far away with unwinding and unspooling a piece of public policy where two people might have legitimate and serious disagreements on, but rather we use this personal stuff and throw it at, at one another. And I hope that doesn't happen in Maryland. I really hope it doesn't happen because we don't need that. We don't need that kind of talk. And I just hope that we bring back the civility that is much needed in politics today because we've lost a lot of that, especially in the last election. Yeah, I think as, as long as the underground, as long as the underground assumption is that um, individual that the, these politicians care about Maryland, but they just care about that they approach their care um, from different ways, like they just have different policy views on how to accomplish the best thing for Marylanders. But as long as the, at the core of it, we remember that everybody is trying to do the best thing, um, things get a little bit more civil, and that, that is that's my hope as well. And I, again, yeah. I like the partisan jockeying, too. I like to see, you know, I, I like a, a good campaign. I like a tough campaign. I like a competitive race. I think it's good, I think it's good to be competitive. Um, but I do, but I, I do hope that we do not have a 2016 redo here in the state. And I don't think we will, to be honest with you. No. I don't think any of, the, any of our politicians, Larry Hogan and the Democratic competitors on the other side, um, I don't think that they will produce the same sort of race that we saw in 2016. No. No, and Larry Hogan That's a good has. Thing. <laughs> it, it's a very good thing, and Larry Hogan and many of the Democratic candidates have skewed the, the, the constant undertones, the bickering, the nastiness. So I'm I'm hoping that 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 the policies are are what is front and center, and I'm sure that there's going to be some sniping that Larry Hogan did this or that you know Kevin Kamenetz or Sharon Baker or Ben Jealous said this, and look, we're that's that's fine, that's that's fairness, but. Um, let's just keep the personal out of it. Um, so why don't you take the last word? What, what would you like for listeners of, of this show? What would you like to leave them with? Well, um, I guess if I have a chance for self-promotion, I'll always do it. I, I guess <laughs> to, to look out for the Goucher Bowl coming out um, in September 2017, we're going to look at a lot of different statewide issues, and we're going to check in with that Democratic primary race, and we're going to check back in with Larry Hogan's approval ratings. Uh, he hit a, a high of 72% last fall, and, let's, and I'm curious to see um, if he can sustain that or if it's at least in the ballpark um, or if uh, or it has dropped. So please check back in with us. We'll be releasing something around uh, probably the end of September, beginning of October, something like that. Well, I am a. Thank you so much for having me. That too. <laughs> absolutely no. We I, I I always appreciate your commentary, and I I really do appreciate 
you coming on the show. And look, we're building a minor detail up, but we try to have those conversations that are important to Maryland. We, we, we keep it on the policy. Um, we try to stay away from the, the drama that has so consumed politics and have a, a solid discussion like this. So I appreciate it. I read um, everything that you write. Um, I follow you closely and you're also on Twitter and I encourage people to to follow you there to keep an eye on the polling. Um, and then if they ever have any questions, they can, um, they can find you and email you. And I do all the time. So um, I appreciate it. Thanks for doing this, Dr. Cromer. And man, what an exciting time to be a Marylander, to be, to be an American citizen, as you mentioned earlier, to be a spectator in all of this. It's, um, it's a lot of news every single day. And we sit back and we're going to analyze it. So once again, I want to say thanks for coming on. And um, I hope you enjoy Game of Thrones tonight. I will. Thank you so much for your flexibility and <laughs> allowing us to talk early instead of late. Yeah. And, and now I head off to Maryland's eastern shore. Um, we are going to St. Michael's for the day to spend and enjoy some of this um, um, unseasonably lesser warm weather. There's not a whole lot of humidity out. I've, I took a walk earlier this morning and uh, now we're going to enjoy the, uh, the Chesapeake Bay. So. Well, that sounds lovely. Even though I like <laughs> it when it's hot. I like it. Yeah. I, I don't like these lulls and I want to be constantly, oppressively 100 degrees all the time. But that's just me. <laughs> well, I, I, I'll end on this. Go Steelers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Yeah, you, I live in Baltimore now. Quit trying to force me into an unpopular opinion. I, uh, okay. Well, we can. Right, you you can support great, both. Great day. All, All right. right you bye, too. Ryan. Bye, bye.